Welcome to episode 23 of Once Upon a Lifetime. We have come to our final episode on Andrew Carnegie. In this episode, we're going to look at the very end of his life, his last hopes and dreams. Um, We are going to begin this episode, though, with a strange short detour into just, just an oddity. In 1904, there's a woman who I think she's in Indiana or Illinois, and she gets arrested for fraud. She has been lying to banks all over the place, saying that she is Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate daughter. Which is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. If if someone knew Andrew, but then people thought, well, it's plausible because like she would, if she really is the illegitimate daughter of Carnegie, then he would be honorable enough to honor her. Yeah, that part was. And people knew that he... He was not an ascetic the way Vanderbilt was. Um, you know, he liked to drink. He liked, to, but he didn't. He was not like a partier. But right, right. It was one of those things where enough people kind of scratched their heads and went, mm, "Maybe you never know. Could be. It would be good for our business if she was." Yep. So, but they- she had borrowed, I think, about a million dollars before <gasps> the bankers started looking. You know, started calling in her debt. Right. And then, what do you know? It wasn't able to be paid. Right. So. They looked back into her history, and she had done this before. Uh, you know, a, a couple of decades before, she had done the same thing to another man. Said that she was his illegitimate daughter. Took out all this money. I mean, right? So clearly, it was it was all she was in. She was put in jail. Oh gosh, yeah. And and so she went to court, and Carnegie went. He was so incensed that. Like that, his reputation and his marriage will be so besmirched that he he went and yeah, he represented defend- himself. Yes, he yes. did. In 1905, his daughter is eight. Margaret falls off of a swing, and they think she sprained her ankle. But after a month in a cast, it is not getting better. And so they keep taking her to different specialists. And they're in Scotland. Right. Um, they go to different doctors, different specialists. And, I mean, they have no idea what it is. And it's just getting worse. It's not getting better. She can't really walk anymore. And there's this, I think the underlying fear really is, is it bone cancer? Oh, yeah. But they don't know. And they keep waiting for it to heal. And there's this, so honestly, from the years, for about, three years she's unable to use that leg she walk she's it's in a cast and she's in mostly in a wheelchair or in braces sometimes and there's just this um deep fear that something terrible is going on that is unidentified and so that really colors the next three years of their lives you know in all of the letters at that point is always one of those little updates on how margaret is doing oh now, could it be like all of the doctoring, like having too much money and access to too many medical opinions could it, could have been part of the problem? I yeah, mean, I'm... could have been, although the treatments were always like, go to the sea. Huh. You know, I mean, there right. but all of the casts and everything like there were casts. you're like in a cast, I imagine would 
cause some degree of atrophy. So I don't know. I mean, there there may have been one of those underlying reasons. Or I always think of in, in the story Heidi, where Clara all of a sudden could get up out of the wheelchair. You know, it mm-hmm. turns out she'd just been sitting in it. Yeah. So that was her problem. So <laughs> I don't know. No, I think this really was a thing. I mean, they called it, they said it might be, have been tuberculosis of the leg, which oh, oh. I don't really know I what that I don't even means. want to Google that. No, no, let's not. Let's not. No... Dr. Google. Um, so they, this changes their schedule. You know, they have the, they have a very set schedule where yes. they sail to Skibo and then they come back in the fall. They go in April, they come back around September. Like this is what they do. They've been doing it for decades. Well, suddenly they have to go to Florida for the winter instead because it was too much of a journey for Margaret over right. the and, ocean. I mean, conveniently, Tom's widow owns an island. So yeah, this is not a bad place to go. Go see Aunt Lucy in her island, right? Yep, with, her, with all the nine cousins, you know. <laughs> and they build a little, it's like a shell collecting wagon for Margaret. Aww. They would wheel her down in the wheelchair, but when they'd get to the sand, they had built this very low wagon where she could lay in the wagon and kind of pick up shells. She could still, like, pick up shells and build sandcastles and things from the wagon. Right. And she says, you know, it wasn't all bad. She's she's kind of like, well, it was nice because my mom bought me a doll. And, you know, she hadn't had a lot of toys. She was really not a spoiled child. No. But when her mom realized she wasn't going to be able to run around and play golf, she'd been learning how to play golf and things. When she wasn't able to do that... She bought her this doll that was her that went with her everywhere after that. Andrew had been getting more and more preoccupied with world peace, which to us is a punchline now. <laughs> you know, I, and, and it's like mis- a Miss America, yeah, miscongeniality, yes. you know, world peace. But back then, it hadn't really been tried yet. World peace had not been attempted. It's a modern idea. It is kind of. It a really mo- is. Well, we've yeah, and this is before the twentieth century with all the wars. Right. <laughs> so it still feels to Andrew. He thinks world peace is one of these next steps on the evolutionary. Right. Like the International Brotherhood of Man kind of. Yes, we're going thing. to have this, and yes. he believes that America is going to have a a major role. So just as Andrew, as an industrialist, had evolved to earn all this money, and he was going to kind of bridge this gap between management and labor, so America, the new kid on the block, is going to be in the perfect position to broker peace between all the European, the old world. Right, but they haven't been able to figure it out. So here we are. We have evolved. America has arrived. We have democracy and ideas and steel tubes and (laughs) libraries. We have all the things we will bring them to you and we will broker all your peace. So you don't need to worry anymore, Europe. America is here. We have the answers. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt seems to Carnegie to be a man of destiny, as he puts it. A man of action. Yes. And so he, since he is... Clearly very evolved, Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> I think Teddy Roosevelt would tell you that, yes. Yeah, he's super evolved. Right. So he's going to go, he's going to be this, you know, he believes in kind of a great man theory of history and politics, that these things are done by great men. 
that it's really all relationships. So I'm a great man, as, you know, as this steel magnate, I'm a great man. And Teddy Roosevelt's a great man. And together, get two great men, we can influence other great men, and we will have world peace. It's really up to the great men. Right. To broker this world peace. All I have to do is convince them. And it's funny because he's also such a sanguine temperament that I feel like he's like, oh, I can, if I could just get you in a room, I could convince you. If we could just sit in some bathtubs and <laughs> together. <laughs> right. So, he, and he just cannot be, he really deeply believes this progress is unstoppable. So, for example, there, he learns about the slaughter of the Russian Jews in 1905, mm. and he's sending money to a relief fund for the Jews. And in the in there is a note to his friend. He says, "The terrible crimes being committed are such as might lead one to lose faith in humanity. Do not be discouraged, however." Under the law of evolution, we must steadily, though slowly, march upward and finally reach the true conception of the brotherhood of men. Oh, okay. So this is a, he, he holds it as a doctrine of faith. Yes. It, like it has to be. This kind of comment and statement is really sort of already early on in Teddy Roosevelt's presidency wearing Teddy down. He's just, I mean, he's a man of optimism. Ask. I'm sure people come up to Teddy and they want all kinds of business favors or little, you know, little dodges here and there. Yes. You know, your normal kind of like rich guy handshake deals. And Andrew comes up and he just says, Can you give me world peace? Right. Like, can how about we do this? Right. It's it's not like the normal kind of little wheeling dealing political. Right. He actually, so Roosevelt writes a letter to someone. I tried hard to like Carnegie, but it is pretty difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Just, and then he says, so he's so, Roosevelt is really sick of Carnegie's articles all about, it's basically soapboxing about the evils of war, the evils of every war in kind of any circumstance. Um, And Roosevelt says, it is as noxious a folly to denounce war per se as it is to denounce business per se. Unrighteous war is a hideous evil, but I am not at all sure that it is worse evil than business unrighteousness. So he's seeing in Andrew a moral hypocrisy. I don't know if it's a hypocrisy as much as like a blind spot. I I think that for Andrew, it made all perfect sense. Yes. He was this evolutionary cog in this evolutionary wheel. It is a system. He can understand it. He's It's a system and he can't, he's powerless to do anything about the market prices for the wages of workers. I mean, he, yes. What, what how, <laughs> he couldn't possibly. So for him, it makes utter, he's completely consistent in his his own ethical his parameters view is but if you don't share that idea which roosevelt did not share it to the same degree of conviction um then it looks a lot like a hypocrisy so it's it is interesting you're from your pers- from different people's perspective he could really be a villain or he could just be right either he's just like a faithful benevolent genius or he is extremely arrogant yeah, well, he, I, yeah, he for sure was. I mean, he thought very highly of himself. Well, <laughs> but, yes. Like, at what point does confidence become arrogance? Uh-huh. Yeah, that is the question. Hmm. And as he's getting older, he is feeling this pressure to be a great man, not just be make a great amount of money. He's done that. 
Well, he'd rather have it be about uh, his his works and his what he's given to humanity and not just the money that he piled up. Yeah, I think he's afraid of dying a, a pecuniary, you know, he didn't want to die a Scrooge. Not that I mean, he won't because he's going to give it away. But he also wants to contribute something. He wants to change the world. And he thinks, right. why on earth would I be the richest man in the world? If it wasn't because I was designed and I am the man, I right. am evolutionarily. This is my purpose. This is my purpose. So he, it, I don't think it's a hypocr. It's not a hypocrisy the way we think of a hypocrisy. Um, it, it's consistent for him. It all makes sense to him. But if you have, if you don't share his ideas, then you see, can see the flaw in the system. Say, right? Ideas matter. They influence our actions, and so the ideas he had that led him to some actions that are questionable at least if not condemnable and it doesn't mean he was bad it means he had a bad idea right and i think that intention is so important and when you look at it it's more about he built himself up and now he wants to bring all the rest of humanity with him that's He's, right it's not about leaving everything behind and and looking on down from some Great Tower, he wants to basically help elevate mankind in the same way that he elevated himself. That's right. Yeah. And he thinks that that it it was kind of meant to be. He thinks it's destiny. He he believes as much as he believes in Who evolution. Are we to question destiny. That's right. <laughs> oh dear. Yep. So Andrew's idea is that he is going to be this bridge between the English political parties and the American political parties. And he is going to, so they will at least be united. And Andrew will be this hinge piece. Oh, and good he can luck. sort of translate between the two. And he understands both political parties. And um, he just thinks he's very well placed to be this connecting point. And he also thinks, I know, I'm going to start a peace conference. I'm going to go to The Hague. I'm going to start a peace conference, and we are going to start to talk about disarmament. And that way, if we have no weapons, we can't fight each other. So this is good. His pre he thinks of himself as very practical. This right. is actually a very practical. Thing. I have an idea, Louise. Yes. <laughs> we... Yeah. Oh. So he wants to. There's kind of an arms race at this uh -huh. point, which has to do with the dreadnought ship. Everyone is building these. Right. The British Navy is come up with this yep. amazing ship. And, and then Germany goes, well, we, we fancy having a big ship too. And then England goes, oh, well, we, we, we want rather like to ships. have more ships than you. And so yep. they do so. And then Germany's like, hmm. And then on top of all that, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt starts building these big ships. And Andrew's like, no, 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 no. We are supposed no. to be the ones Doesn't not doing this. Doesn't he have an idea? He says, if, if England... And America combine their navies and just share yes. their ships. We don't I, need quite as yeah, many. Yeah, at one point he thinks they're going to share ships. Right. I, I mean... Just, I could just say the British Navy is just like, what? And <laughs> no. This is why Teddy calls some of his ideals noxious folly. Well, they're idealistic and they're they're so pure in their simplicity. But To the pure, all things are pure. And yeah. Andrew is, is a man of tremendous goodwill. And he's also very upright, and he would never betray another man who had goodwill towards him. Right. So he believes that this is a possible thing, and mm -hmm. he believes that these are great men, and that a great man is a good man, 
he doesn't always believe that, of course. You can prove that wrong. But for the most part, he right. gives people the benefit of the doubt. So he thinks if you do almost an ironclad agreement with ships or something, if you if you make this kind of deal, that, that people would honor that. Yeah. And, and this is so we look at it in hindsight and it looks it's kind of laughable. It's almost utopian. But from his perspective, it made perfect sense because evolution is marching on. We're entering this golden era and all we need is a few deals between these great men who are so evolved. He also wants an international body of arbitration. He wants everybody to um, send, you know, if you have a dispute with someone, don't threaten war, just go to the judges. Ah. And there'll be this international board of judges. And then, so Teddy says to him in a, in a letter, <laughs> basically, well, we can't have an international board of arbitration i mean in order for that to work you would need an international police force and instead of hearing it that way andrew hears what we need is an international police force <laughs> he's like yes yes now you're thinking like, right i see you're on board you get it uh, totally and that's exactly what <laughs> happened for Theodore years like, must be like holding his head going I, am i Oh, Not. he's just uh, <laughs> none of the presidents respected Andrew really at, almost at all because these ideas, they, they just found that they were so out there. And Andrew had no, you know, it's one thing to be the CEO of or in, the owner of and the major stock holder right. of a business and you can make these decisions unilaterally well in his railroad days he was like he was in the loop and yeah here politically well, he's politically kind of everything outside. is impossible to accomplish in real life you know right. bureaucracy as it is is just slows everything down so andrew has these ideas as if things can really happen where all of the politicians who he's trying to influence are all like who do you well, uh, it's like he's saying all, all we need is transparency and and Mm -hmm. They're like, no, <laughs> that's the last thing we want. Yeah. That's and the they're they ha they don't they have limited power. I just don't think he understood that because he really did have om almost total power in his companies. Yes. The presidency's not like that. So he settles on Teddy Roosevelt is an important thing. He also settles on the Kaiser, Kaiser <laughs> Wilhelm II oh, of Germany, who the, well, the German military establishment at this point has ambitions for Germany. This yes. is right before World War One. They're getting ideas. Yeah, they have got plans. And the Kaiser is he's the leader, but he's limited in his power too. the same way the president is, you know, he he isn't Germany. It's almost as if Andrew thinks the Kaiser is Germany. And if he can just get the Kaiser on board with international peace Germany will be like, okay. Right. Like sure. he can just, but you know, he's got generals, Prussian generals who have all manner of goals. So he thinks he's going to have a conversation with Roosevelt, talk to the Kaiser, chat with the king. Mm -hmm. he, they can all have some shortbread and whiskey and, and it, it's all going to be ironed out. He's yeah. going to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And he's going to start the League of Nations with an international police force. It's just crazy. This is what he says about the Kaiser. No other man has the power to draw a League of Nations competent to keep the peace for an agreed-upon period. He has the cards. May the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, light upon and lead him heavenward. Fortunately, he's very devout, very Never was Holy Father more thoroughly convinced of his mission than I am of mine. I know I offer his imperial majesty the plan that makes him the greatest agent, capitalized, 
known so far in human history. Wow. He believes we're on the cusp of world peace. Yes. And the Kaiser is the key. Yep. How, you know... He writes that to John Moore. When he gets things right, he gets them so right. And when he gets them wrong... He's so wrong. You're like, you could not be wrong. That's the wrong basket. It is, (laughs) absolutely. Put your eggs of peace in a basket. That would not be the basket. The Kaiser is not not the basket. Um, Yeah, John Morley says in response to that, that you can inflame him with your crusader zeal, I am not sure. (laughs) But the effort is noble. This is his best friend, John Morley. Imagine you just get one of Andrew's letters and you just sit there and you're like, how... Am yeah. I going to answer him? Right, right, right. How politely do you say? Right. So he's kind of in charge of these, uh, not in charge, but he's, you know, at the forefront of both. There's a peace conference in New York and a peace conference in The Hague. He's kind of involved, super involved in both. And neither one even begins to touch on Andrew's pet project, which is the International Police Force, which scares the bejesus out of me. I mean, that's exactly what we don't want. (laughs) No. (laughs) We're all terrified of it now. But he was just a thought, well, because he thinks people are good and we don't think that really. You know, we don't, we just don't have faith in humanity the way he did. No. And it's right after this second peace conference that Teddy Roosevelt decides to build up the Navy. (laughs) And Andrew's just like, oh, that's a bummer. But then right after that announcement, he has his birthday and he sends out a letter to the to all Uh the newspapers. And this is his announcement. The Andrew Carnegie birthday announcement. The world is growing better. Men are more kindly disposed, more charitable, more solicitous for others, less selfish. The time is coming much more rapidly than we dream when war will be a thing of the past. Oh, yes, indeed. I can't see why a good omnipotent power should allow suffering, why he allows poverty, sickness, and sin. It isn't clear to me why he allows men to still have such dreadful delusions as that it is necessary for some of them to kill some others in the savagery of war. In particular, I don't at all understand the mysterious law of evolution, according to which the higher forms of life live upon the lower, rising through slaughter into extinction. That is profoundly the tragically obscure and perplexing, but we must accept and bow our heads to murmur to the universal law, thy will be done. Well, happy, happy, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Have some cake. (laughs) Well, this is interesting because his view here of evolution, it's kind of like leading to extinction. Only for the, the, it's the survival of the fittest. So yeah. Right. It leads to the extinction of all unfit. Oh boy. Um, his personal motto that he lived with was all is well since all grows better. Oh. So there's a lot of comfort. He finds a lot of comfort in this creed. And this is why things like Homestead, they'd shake him, but he would bounce back because he just thought it was all part of the evolutionary process. Right. The, the progress is is unstoppable. Inevitable. Yeah. Well, it's got to be. The times he was living in, in his lifetime, all of the progress that he saw, I mean, oh my gosh, having yes. an electrified mansion with running waters and elevators and... After being born in a weaver's cottage, right. and, you know, Dunfermline. Everything is possible. Mm-hmm. How could it not be? He's seen for himself. Yep. Okay, so we now begin what I would call the descent. This is a short period of descent as he comes to the end of his life. But 
I have rarely been so saddened by someone else's bad idea being proved wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that this, mm-hmm. this idea of the inevitability of evolutionary progress is incorrect. I mean, I think the 20th century has shown us that. Not that, not that evolution is wrong, just scientifically, but that, that social right. evolution it does not follow the same inevitable laws is scientific evolution. Well, you, you would want him to be right, that peace was around the corner, that mankind, like poverty, illness, all of those things would be things of the past. You you want him to be right about this. Right. But in those cases, you have to believe that humans don't have free will. And right. If you're following Andrew's theology. It has to be here. laws. There have to be law. You know, if you're if you are believing that social evolution... Mm-hmm. is the same uh, is well, it's not like a math formula like it it doesn't just yeah you would you would have to not believe that there's any freedom in in life that we're not making choices that right and we all know now with especially with modern science that our choices are complicated sometimes we choose to not eat a banana not because we don't want a banana but because when we were children, we were forced to eat bananas and now we hate them, you know, so we know that that decision making is complicated and it's not it's we're not always as free as we believe we are <laughs> to make a choice. But we also know that he's wrong, that mankind does not always improve. There is some type of cyclical Things get better, things get worse. There's a pendulum swing from side to side. When you're looking at history, you see this going back and forth. It's not simply always better. Right. It's not like you lay out the railroad tracks and and you just go straight from A to B. There are a lot of detours in our human history. Right. So Carnegie is still believing that if he cultivates a relationship with Roosevelt and then guides Roosevelt to talk to the Kaiser, if he can just get these two guys together, who he, he respects both of them, that they they will see reason. They'll come to an agreement and he's going to kind of prevent this whole buildup from yeah. happening. And Teddy Roosevelt has just left office and he has planned a year long safari as one does. Right. He has taken with him all these scientists as well. So he's calling right. it scientific research. He's not just shooting giant animals because it's fun, right? It's science. Not only that. <laughs> but the pictures of Roosevelt on this trip oh, are upsetting. It's very cringy. To it really is. Everything that was wrong, I think, with... Oh, um, my gosh. Yes. And, and all the porters and... It just the whole scene is it's not a good look. No, it is not. But um, he runs out of money partway through this. It's very expensive. The more things you shoot, the more people have to carry them. And it just really does add up. It sure does. So he writes Carnegie and says, you know, I'm going to have to send these scientists home because I just don't have enough money to keep them here all year. Gosh, Unless right. you wanted to, you know, fund the scientific research. Because progress. Progress. Exactly. Right. So Carnegie tries to get other people to buy into this. He's like, oh, okay, I'll give some money. He gives like a few thousand. In the end, nobody will donate money to this, this cause. 
Right. And and the understanding that he has with Roosevelt is that he's going to help pay for Roosevelt's like safari with the understanding that Roosevelt will, when he's done shooting all of the things, he will then go and talk to the Kaiser. Yes. Like, that's he, they have an, the a end fairly game. explicit deal. Right. Carnegie says, fine, I'll give you $30,000 to get your scientists home. Afterwards, I want you to come and meet with the Kaiser and then also meet in London with the prime minister. And Roosevelt's like, of course, sure. Roosevelt not? says, and at this point, their letters get kind of gross because they both feel like they have tricked the other person. <laughs> oh, no. And they're all like flattery and it's just like a mutual Good admiration society. It's friend. very, yeah, yeah. Like, oh. hey, and can't wait to, and oh, what a good idea. I Yes, I will definitely tell the Kaiser that. And when he has, anyway, <gasps> what happens is Roosevelt comes, he does meet with the Kaiser. For five days, he meets with the Kaiser. And he never once brings up the League of Nations. No. And for Roosevelt's perspective, he it's an absurd idea. Right. The Kaiser would He's never embarrassed do this. to bring this up. He's embarrassed. It's like and Carnegie has become associated with the peace movement in a way that wasn't exactly fair to Carnegie because he he did have I mean it wasn't only ideas. He had some practical ways to bring it up but he was associating himself with people who were pure idealists pure utopianists right did and not roosevelt's thinking that it's just like it's a crackpot thing that i don't want to yeah. bring in front of this yeah. other superpower i don't want to come up i'm actually say, gonna looking i'm gonna be embarrassed <laughs> if i bring this up right and it's not gonna go anywhere it you know it's not as if he like, never intended to bring it up i don't believe he ever intended to Probably not. Actually. No. He probably spent half of that year, you know, oiling his rifle, thinking about how he's going to get out of this. Yeah. Yeah. So he technically did it. And then right then to the king, the king of England dies. And so um, oh dear. instead of being able to now go from Germany to England to meet with the prime minister, all of that is off the table, which right. even Andrew is like, yeah. Now we can't do that part, but we'll do it some other time soon. And he's still, he's just blinded to this. He does not know that he's been deceived and that he's really not respected by these international leaders. He still thinks of himself as big stuff. Yeah. And he's getting older. He was already tiny to begin with. And and if you look at little political cartoons, he does look like he's becoming like less Santa and more like a, a elf, you know? Yeah. He's just... Yeah, the one, the Nassau biography puts it, he was becoming almost a caricature of himself. Oh. So, you know, he had these big ideas, but like as he got older, he got more rigid in his ideas and a little right. bit more extreme in them. It just, he lost some of that flexibility and nuance and practicality. Right. Um, now, he's not a thousand percent wrong. He is, he's remarkably accurate in some ways, um, he says, it is true that every nation regards and proclaims its own armaments as instruments of peace only. But just as naturally, every nation regards every other nation's armaments as clearly instruments of war. Thus, each nation suspects all the others. And only a spark is needed to set fire to the mass of inflammable material. Well, he's right about that. He's absolutely right about that. <laughs> yes. the, there was a headline after this talk, a headline in the newspaper 
read, Carnegie fears war, pleads for peace, only a spark needed, he declares, to plunge England and Germany into battle. If the weapons are available, war will happen. Yeah. Well. So. I mean, he, he really did still hold out hope until the actual day that war breaks out. And he is flabbergasted. Okay, so World War I starts because the Serbian killed the Archduke. Ferdinand, yes. Yeah. And very quickly, all of these allies declare war on each other. Well, they've all agreed beforehand. Oh, if you you fight, I'm in and so on. So so all of these like little treaties and so on are just quickly called into play. And before you know it, that was that little spark that lit everything on fire, like Andrew said it would. Right. And it is the spark. And so Andrew is absolutely right about that. Um, His solutions to the problem were never going to work. But he was right about the danger. So he, he refuses to believe it. When he's told the news, he's... He's in like a little town in Scotland. Um... And he's told that war is breaking out on the continent. And they immediately run back to Skibo. And they're at Skibo when the local pastor comes to the house. And he says he doesn't want Andrew to find out in the newspapers, but Britain has gone to war. And that's really when I think that's the moment that breaks Andrew Carnegie. It does. I mean, he's never ever the same it's heartbreaking where his response he refuses to take it in and then he just says all my castles have fallen about me yeah and it's so sad yeah he had really worked for peace for 20 years yeah and the thing that killed him the most was that the young british men were thrilled they were flocking to right that join the army everybody's so excited they're patriotic. so excited like, yes. oh we're yes. gonna get those those huns out of belgium we can't wait like right oh, everybody to your guns you know and he just finds this attitude it's just revolting yeah it's not just the fact of war it's the way everyone's the happy about it and yeah it was exciting and they thought well you know we'll be done by christmas and it's just going to be exciting and i hope it's not over before i get to join there was that enthusiasm because nobody really knew how bad it was going to be. Yeah. Nobody could know how bad it was going to be. Except for him. I mean, he, he, you know, he had some premonition that this was going to really be a disaster. So it just crushes him. He turns old overnight. I mean, it is like he's the Andrew everybody knows and loves one day. And then the next day he's shrunken. They say physically he just got old. He he shrank in on himself. He got hollow cheeks. Mm-hmm. He could hardly walk anymore. Right. Um, and when they returned to America, there was no going back to Europe. There was no going back to ski boat like during those war years. No, it was too dangerous. The military ad actually set up a base right down the street from ski right. So because it's on the North Sea. So they have access to the continent. And so he... They had to he's leave. He's cut off from his castle. He's cut off from Europe. And mm-hmm. he's just seen everything fall into flames. Yeah. He says um, he actually admits to reporters that the war has shaken his optimism about the general goodness of humanity. Oh. So uh, he starts having these panic attacks. And um, I think it honestly sounds like he, like he's lost his religion. He's 
lost faith in his guiding principles, the things he just thought were inevitable, he now is questioning at his age. And you have to then reevaluate your whole life and how you just spent your whole life and what were you doing that whole time and everything comes into question. Right. I could have been spending this time with my family or whatnot instead of trying to talk to the Kaiser. <laughs> yeah. And just he just, and, and maybe he did the wrong thing at Homestead and maybe he did the wrong thing with his business partnership with Frick. Maybe he, you know, I mean, everything, I think you just mm-hmm. start to reevaluate in light of a new revelation. Right. You reevaluate. So he bounces back a tiny bit. I mean, he never really bounces back, but he starts to talk about well, this uh, along with most people talks about the war to end all wars and that after this war surely Surely, people are gonna see that we need a league of nations and an international police force and we have to go to arbitration we cannot be fighting wars anymore like people will have to see now why it's so important everything that i've said you know now that you've seen that it's come to be surely now you'll want to listen right so Luis, her main goal here is to just support him to take care of him and just every every thought of hers now is to make sure that he can enjoy what what's left of his of his remaining years. You know, he he becomes almost a recluse, especially when you compare it to how publicly a life he lived before. Um he stops writing all of his letters. He mm. loses correspondence with his best friends who you know, he would write to John Morley every Sunday for the last 30 years. But John Morley goes for months without hearing anything from him and starts and uh, starts corresponding with Louise to, to get updates. And, right. um, you know, even people who had felt badgered by his letters, like, oh, come, you know, peace, 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 miss him. It's such a loud silence. It is. It's this vacuum where he where he held these roles. Right. He's just he's completely overnight just out. Um. That's 1914, of course, and the war starts. By 1916, they still have not been able to go back to Skibo. And they're kind of going from Florida to Connecticut, you know, for their winter and summer. Margaret debuts as her debutante year in New York City. And she's pretty soon engaged, uh, I think by April of that year. Mm -hmm. And it is very sweet when the man comes and she falls in love. I mean, they have a real love match, which is wonderful because it would be scary to be an heiress yes and um she's not gonna inherit the same amount other people are going to inherit who have rich fathers but she's still going to be quite well off mm-hmm. um and when her fiance comes to ask for her hand in marriage louise writes in her diary that andrew wept oh just he was very moved um and he does live to see her married And they got married, Margaret, and I think it's Richard, got married on the 32nd anniversary of Louise and Andrew's wedding. That's so sweet. It is sweet. Very small wedding again. Just a family. Andrew and Louise walked her down the aisle. Oh. So his 82nd birthday comes about the same time as the end of the war. And there are... 16 million lives gone. They can't go back to Skibo now because he's too ill, but also because all of the men who worked at Skibo, the gardeners and the chef and all the people who worked there are dead. Well, it's also changed too. I don't know if he wants to go back and see. I mean, it was just 
the the scars of the war, you can still see them topographically, the trenches and everything. So I imagine like those first few years, absolutely, he, he didn't want to see it. Well, he didn't know. I mean, he did want to go back. Louise was the one who had, who knew that, who, who thought to. it won't be the same. We right. can't go back because if we go back, it will be too hard. And she actually wrote to Margaret, um, I told daddy that we couldn't go back this year because you had just gotten married and, you know, we want to be close to you. And, and he just said, oh, that's too bad. And that was the end of my worry. You know, we've been so worried about telling him he can't go back to Skibo. Right. But that was the end. It went over very well. Like, he, you know, he handled the, the disappointment quickly and yes. well. But it's Louise who really knows she's more aware of. Well, he can't take another blow. Yes, that's right. She does buy a house in Lenox, Massachusetts for him that is stone and gray, kind of like Skibo, and it's on a hill, kind of like Skibo. It's, you know, it's right. sort of as close to the same feeling as she can get. Yes. So she just buys his house. And, and so they're in Lenox when in on August 11th, 1919. He's almost 84. And he's come down with bronchial pneumonia. Oh, gosh. And... and- she she tends to him. Of course, you know, they have the best of, of nursing and, and doctors and so on. But Louise really tends to him. And on the day that he dies, she was called to him at 6am and she remains with him. And she's the one that's giving him oxygen and, and staying by him. And it didn't take long at 714. He dies and she says, I'm left alone. And it's just so sad. They had such a happy marriage. And, you know, she's she's been by his side for through so much. And, and she phones Margaret at, at Millbrook and she and, and Roswell, her husband, they, they get there a little bit later that morning. And she, they did everything that they could do. And she just writes in her diary, I rested all day. And Margaret and Roswell were such comforts, relieving me of details. Telegrams are pouring in. I think he knew me, but he did not speak. And she takes a little rest and she says, everybody is so kind, but what is life to me now? It is amazing the amount of telegrams they received and condolence cards and letters from mm -hmm. like every friend they'd ever made, everybody they'd ever hosted at Skibo, all these politicians and, and famous people. But then you also have just your average person who's been to a Carnegie library. Sure. Um, Everybody's read of him in the papers. Everyone knew Carnegie. He, he was just such a mythical figure that it, it must have been such a thing. Right. So he was buried at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in New York. Um, he gave away $350 million. He fell short of his goal of personally giving away his money because of compound interest. Oh, dear. <laughs> he could have given what it away. What a problem. He's like, my money keeps growing. I exactly. can't get rid of it. I can't give it away fast enough. Oh. So he gets rid of um, $350 30 million of it. Right. And then has 20 million left at the end. So he gosh, starts a trust fund, the Carnegie right. Corporation. Um, I think it's very fortunate that income tax wasn't a thing. I mean, that would have solved a lot of it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. He actually leaves 
a lot of legacies to all sorts of people, servants. I mean, you know, everybody at Skibo, whoever worked at Skibo gets something. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been giving pensions for to for friends, sometimes secretly, sometimes they knew it was him. But he had been paying pensions to people for decades as it was. And so all of them had money in, in trusts for them. Mm-hmm. Um, he leaves money. I think it's interesting. He leaves money to Luis but leaves no money to Margaret. And the reason being is he said he didn't want to burden his daughter with a fortune that she then would have to learn how to administer and that her mother would know what she really needed and would be able to get her what she truly needed and not, he didn't want to force Margaret to figure out how to use money well. Or for people to figure out how to use Margaret. Exactly. Yeah. It was a protection. I mean, mm-hmm. he certainly wanted her to be well cared for, right, of course. Right. And she's married anyway. But um, it is interesting, the massive fortunes inherited by the other oh, of his peers. tycoons yes. of the era. And right. his wife and daughter couldn't even afford to keep Skibo open. No, no. You know, in... in during his lifetime, he had devised his own coat of arms, and he had an artist paint it on one of his library walls in his New York mansion. And it's interesting because it's a shield, and the center of it contains a weaver's shuttle to represent his father, William, and a shoemaker's knife. And the, all of the sources say because one of his ancestors worked as a shoemaker. Oh and I'm thinking, gosh, his, his mother. mother. That's his mother, right? It's his father and his mother. That yes. is Meg's right there. That is that he so was so grateful. That humble little shoemaker's Absolutely. knife there meant so much to him. And he wanted to, you know, recognize his ancestors as being like humble men. And so then the Coates Crest also has a reversed crown. And oh. on top of it, a cap of liberty. Do-do-do. Then on the sides, we have the American and the Scottish flags. And then best of all is the motto, death, death to, to privilege. privilege. <laughs> that it's is very interesting. Just It's so Andrew. It's so idealistic. But it I is. just the thing that pleases me most about that crest, that coat of arms, is that little shoemaker's knife. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So that is the end of Andrew Carnegie. Oh, dear. It's the longest ever. It is. It's so long. So We need to pick people who have done much less. Yes. If you know of any mediocre people you can always, <laughs> <laughs> who led uninspiring lives and did short, very little. Short lives. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, the. Uh, curious to know. The, the available literature on Andrew Carnegie is copious. It's and exhaustive. Yes. Yeah. So when someone says, oh, I've written this exhaustive biography. They mean exhausting. Yeah. I'm so grateful for all of the information. But Andrew Carnegie's life, it is like drinking through a fire hose, getting all of this information yes. and just everything that he did. What a capable guy. But yeah. gosh, if yeah. he could have slowed down, we would have had some more hours in our day. I know. No kidding. It's crazy. So thank you for joining us on yes, this long adventure you. into Andrew Carnegie. I finally am pronouncing it right probably 80% of the time. Yes. And thank you, as always, to Evan Cresta for editing and mixing this episode Join us at our Facebook group or at 
onceuponalifetimepodcast.com. Thank you.